Hey listeners, welcome back. I am your host Sadia Khan and you are listening to Immigrantly. I hope you are enjoying season 9. We are working really hard to bring you great quality content and I am so incredibly proud of our team of dedicated committed folks who are working to bring you these incredible stories storytelling is an art and believe you me we as a team are learning how to create stories that resonate with so many of you i am also thankful for all our listeners for coming back every week who send us emails who appreciate our work our followers on instagram on twitter Um I have said this before I will say it again we need your help to sustain the podcast so if you can try to buy our merch or subscribe to our Patreon or just make a one time donation to our GoFundMe every penny counts and it helps us grow now as someone who tries to stay up to date on news and what's happening around us I find myself reading headlines that seem to be iterations of the same problem or person this was especially true for 2020 when media attention fell on only two things former president and covid and i know it's important to write about these matters but there are other things happening in this country and in the world and sometimes i am skeptical that what i'm reading isn't the full picture or even half of it. So on top of everything else that we are doing here at Immigrantly, what we've decided or what I have decided at least is that I'm going to actively seek out stories that are underreported to be more in tune with what is occurring outside the physical borders of the US. Now there are many ways to do that. I could do that through reading more local papers which i am already doing and independent news sources um or i could try my hands at other forms of media like video journalism now video journalism has fascinated me for the longest time and i am really an off journalist who take on that media form and because of that i thought why not invite somebody who does this work and get her perspective on how she got interested in this kind of work and where has it led her what sets the type of digital video journalism apart from broadcast or from other traditional print media is you know we can bring characters into the story in such a visceral way and mm. a way that can humanize mm. people you know you actually see this person's face you can connect with them so our today's guest Nilo Tabrizi is a video journalist for the New York Times prior to that she produced for Vice News and wrote for Al Jazeera from an interview with Iran's foreign minister on the nuclear deal to reporting on family separation at the border Nilo lends ordinary faces to these crucial voices that is the power of video journalism you see the human behind the story Nilo's episodes expose these other stories and do so in such a mindful way I am so impressed with Nilo's work. She's used her platform to share news on issues that plague communities outside the US. 
and such international use that is important for us to follow as global citizens. And listeners, if you have any recommendations on reliable, disruptive sources of news, please send them our way. At Immigrantly, as you know, most of you who are frequent listeners or even new listeners, you will discover this. We always seek ways to learn inward and outward. Shoot us a message on Instagram or you can even email us at info at immigrantlypod.com. If you think of a suggestion or just wanted to say hi, we'd love to hear from you guys. We always welcome inputs on what our next episode should be. And before I get distracted again, let's uh, start our interview with Nilo. I am so excited for this particular interview and I know we had to reschedule a few times, but we are here um, and I have a lot of questions for you, but I will start with the basics. Um, I want to get a few things out of the way first. I want to start with your Iranian identity. You grew up in Tehran and what I've noticed by reading your stuff, watching videos, um, that you bear this heritage proudly and curiously. Now, being an Iranian can mean a lot of things. All of us with hyphenated identities go through that, right? We are navigating two cultures. But what I've noticed, especially about Iranian identity, is that between the shahs of sunset and the images of protesters chanting death to America, we see a spectrum of Iranian identity and some aspects of it, unfortunately, are highlighted more than others in the US in mainstream media. I'm curious to know what is your reflection on what it really means to be an Iranian? I think that's a great question. I think I'm still reflecting on that and will probably reflect on that for much of my life. But Mm -hmm. for me, I think so much of Iranian identity starts with the home because that's the first place that I really became familiar with my culture. So much of what I know and what I identify has been brought to me by my parents. So whether it's, you know, I found a home in Persian poetry and that has so much to do Mm. with how it has been in our house. And I think so much of me trying to understand um, identity more and understand my place as an Iranian woman and in the diaspora has been trying to understand and get a, a literacy with poetry. So I think that has been a big launch pad for me. And I think too, for a lot of Iranians, Mm. we look to the past to define ourselves. Um, And I think that's, Mm. that's kind of been the trend or something I've noticed in my studies for a long time. I mean, even when, I mean, if we go back to, you know, to the seventh century, ninth century, 10th century, you know, very, uh, very, very much in the past, even at that time in the Persian Empire, yeah. Iranians used the past to define ourselves because this was at a time a couple hundred years after there was the um, Arab invasion of the Persian Empire and a new mm-hmm. language and religion was brought to our land. So what did Iranians do at that time? You know, we had a poet named Fardosi who wrote this epic poem that's longer than Homer's um, Iliad. And he looked to the past to define who we were in the present. And I feel like that is Mm -hmm. so much we've always done that. He did that as a way to preserve 
preserve our language and our culture. And I think that that's what Iranians do today as well. You know, a lot of us have complicated feelings about the current government and power. And so we look to mm. the past. We look to our classic poets, our music, our tradition, our culture that sustained hundreds of years as a way to kind of define and find ourselves. And that's something that I, I, I absolutely see myself doing. I grew up in Pakistan. So for me, Iran is a neighboring country. It's um, fellow Muslims in a way, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about the language, Farsi. I think about food. I speak Pashto at home. It's similar to Farsi in some ways. So when I think about Iran, there's a lot of goodwill. But then when I moved to the U.S., what I noticed was, and I mentioned it in the beginning as well, we see these caricature-like depictions of Iran. Why do you think we are not seeing Iranian poetry, Iranian culture, conversations around Iranian food more in the mainstream media? And you are part of media, you're part of journalism. Why do you think that's happening? I think we see one narrative of Iran really focusing on the political sphere, mainly because of I just think the place that Iran is always captured in American foreign policy, right? So from from Iran's revolution from 1979, it kind of has lodged itself in this really particular place of American foreign policy. You know, after that, mm. with the hostage crisis where the Iranian revolutionaries took over the American embassy and, and held hostages, that obviously is going to start occupying a really traumatic place in the psyche of American media and of Americans. So, and it's really interesting because mm. when I was growing up in Canada, you know, I moved to Vancouver, Canada mm. when I was about four. I grew up mostly there. I grew up back and forth between Iran and Canada, spending time in Tehran in the summers with all my cousins. But this kind of media portrayal didn't exist in the same way as Canada as it did in Canada as it does in the US and I think that's because those traumatic points of tension between Iran and the US don't exist in the same way so this is something that I've kind of gotten more familiar with um and honestly frankly enraged by <laughs> as I moved to the US is just seeing how yeah. we're depicted and also I think you know so much of how we want to be seen in the media and how we want to present ourselves and relate to people, that puts the onus on us as Iranian immigrants. And for a lot of us, the way that we moved and, and left Iran might have been filled with trauma. I feel like I'm the minority in the diaspora wherein my parents left in 1994. You know, we weren't a political mm. family. You know, we're ethnic Turks from Tabriz living in Tehran. We weren't involved in any of the revolutionary movements. And I have friends that I've met in the U.S. whose parents were executed by the revolutionary government or whose family were ambassadors for the Shah and had to move for these political reasons of this very quick uproot and migration. And that's a lot of trauma. Mm. So I think it really depends which Iranian you speak to. But I think for me, I can see the perspective of a lot of my fellow Iranians who are immigrants just being really traumatized by that uprooting. And if you're going to put the onus mm. on us, that's a lot to ask for. So I can see why mm. a lot of my fellow Iranians you know, kind of don't engage with that and don't want to be involved in putting their stories out there and just kind of want to put their heads down and, and work hard and, you know, do do the kinds of things that 
kind of make us, you know, a quote unquote model minority in the US. So yeah, I think there's, it has to do with trauma, the trauma of migration, and also the trauma of how we occupy this very fixated part of American foreign policy. So I think these two things sometimes make it hard for other narratives that I think people would connect with, like our culture, our history, our food, and just how we relate to one another, why it's harder for those narratives to come through. What do you think is one thing that you think if it were to happen, it would break that barrier? I think this is one suggestion that I know, you know, a lot of different um, people of color have been asking for is just frankly, diversity and equity. When I look at my newsroom, I'm the only Iranian staff member. Uh, mm. We have an Iranian writer who's our freelance writer, mostly covers Iran. We have maybe um, another Iranian person who covers New York, uh, but he doesn't speak Persian. Um, we have another member of our team who's Iranian who works on more managerial side, but there aren't many Iranian reporters, you know, and I'm, I'm in the mm. equity group of our company called the Arab Collective, which I'm thrilled to be a part of because it's the region, but there's no representation for us. When we go to fill out mm. a census, who mm. are we? We're, we're not Arab. Um, we don't speak Arabic. Mm. We, you know, we're, we're a minority in our own region. And then we're classified as white under the census. So it's this kind of like, I think we don't really fit neatly into any identity boxes. Some of my Iranian friends hmm. will identify as I'm a brown woman, I'm a brown man, I'm a brown person. Some Iranians don't. So I think we don't know where hmm. we fit sometimes. And I think that might hmm. make it hard for people to understand that we need to occupy certain places. So there's one part of it. And then the other part is just there aren't a lot of Iranians covering Iran. And I think that mm -hmm. has a lot to do, again, with the trauma of, of migration. That, that might be a part to do with it. My Iranian parents aren't thrilled that I cover Iran for news um, because they can obviously understand that mm. it puts me at risk of ever being able to go back. So, you know, I think there's mm. a lot at, we're at play, but I think absolutely we're so underrepresented in media. Um, I don't think we're, we know where we fit and I don't think our editors know where we fit. And it's just kind of shocking to me that there aren't more Iranians who cover Iran. You have to be able mm. to speak the language, you have to be able to connect with people and kind of tell these stories and help people kind of have a platform. But it makes it really hard to do that when there aren't enough of us in the newsroom and when there is such a great risk to us reporting on our own country. Because for a lot of us, as soon mm. as we start reporting, we can't go back. A lot of the fantastic right. Iranian reporters who I know that report on Iran, mm. they don't live in the country because the risk is 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 too high. So I think there's a couple mm. of those factors at play. How much burden does it put on you as an Iranian to get it right when it comes to news reporting um, with regards to Iran? Because I'm sure there is so much onus on you, which is unfair, but I'm sure you feel it, right? Absolutely. I mean, the reason why I started reporting on Iran, I mean, I didn't start reporting on Iran until I came to The Times because it just felt yeah. like too much of a risk, you know. I just didn't want to put my name on anything associated with Iran because it's a complicated country, but I love my country and I love my people. And to feel like doing some piece of work that can alienate you from there is, is a lot. But I think for me, I was just so sick of people getting Iran wrong and just misreporting. And it just yeah. was so frustrating. And I just felt like I just felt like I couldn't watch that happen. It was just too much. And then once I came to the New York Times, I mean, the platform was big enough that I really felt if I can somehow get involved and do Iran reporting in a way that's correct, that outweighs, 
you know, the fear in my head that if I start reporting, I can't return. So it's not just the reporting I do for the video desk, but I also will go and I'll see what we're writing about Iran. And there have been many times that I have flagged to editors that, you know, this is a mischaracterization. This might be incorrect. And I feel really lucky that I have relationships with our great editors at the New York Times where there is a dialogue and they do listen. And I feel every time I flag something, I feel safe enough to share it. And I actually feel heard wherein the coverage does change or context is added. I want to talk about the work that you do. What drew you to video journalism as opposed to, you know, typical news writing or even broadcast journalism? And how are they different? So for me, I've always been a visual person and a visual learner. And so when I was thinking, I, I've wanted to be a journalist since I was five, um, maybe even younger. Hmm. So when I was really trying to understand more of what I wanted to do, probably in high school or college, I was always drawn back to visuals. And I think what sets the type of digital video journalism apart from broadcast or from other traditional print media is, you know, we can bring characters into the story in such a visceral way mm. and a way that can humanize mm. people. You know, you actually see this person's face, you can connect with them. When you do that for broadcast, you may only have, you know, two and a half minutes. Like there's very structured formulaic blocks and how you would do broadcast because it has to go mm. to air. But digital video, you know, the best editors I've worked with said, I asked, what's the runtime for this video? And they're like, as long as it is still good and engaging. So that's really cool. You oh. can just think about this piece is only, you know, like you have a lot of freedom um, to play with. And as well, I think another really great piece of video journalism that we're doing at the New York Times is our visual investigations team, where we use mm. open source uh, video data information to tell a story. And so, for example, mm. a story that I worked on with that team was looking at a Black Lives Matter protest in Philly, where police had mm. essentially kind of trapped and tear gassed uh, protesters without giving them a way out, which is what is prescribed mm. in their own police handbooks as a proper way to use tear gas, for example. And so we mm. kind of did a timeline of that story by finding all these pieces of video evidence, by interviewing eyewitnesses, by looking at police documents, by looking at police dash cam video and piecing together a full complete picture of what happened because the official line, you know, our piece came out about uh, I want to say about a little less than a month after the incident happened. And that whole time, there was no accountability from the police or from mm. the local city. And not to say that there wasn't great reporting. You know, local outlets were doing great reporting trying to push this out, but no one had done like a full forensic look at it. And when we put that mm. out, within hours of our video being out, the city called a press conference. There was immediate consequences. There was going to be a review. The cop who was the incident command was going to take a demotion. I mean, immediately there was impact, mm. which was great because we plainly put the story in a way that could not be ignored. And the impact kept coming. I mean, months after our story came out, the um, city council held a truth and reconciliation type of meeting where they allowed mm. folks who were eyewitnesses and a part of that to talk about their experience of what happened. And they said it was, you know, our video that brought this to that level of attention for them, which was mm. obviously just the like such a great thing to hear. And then as a result of that, the city passed a bill that would ban the use of tear gas for First Amendment protests by the police. Wow. So, so it has this direct impact by showing, you know, so plainly what happened. And I feel like that is so specific to our team mm. and to our medium. And so I feel really mm. proud to kind of 
be a part of that and work with amazing people that have pioneered that. And especially when it comes to visual media, something as powerful as video journalism, I'm sure it takes a lot of toll on you when you're creating it, when you're watching it, your presence, your physical presence in that particular space. How do you take care of your mental health? Well, I see a therapist and every single person in the entire world should um, see a therapist and I hope everyone has access to. I feel very privileged to be able to. As well, I feel like our senior producers, our editors, I think they really understand that. It's always communicated to us. I mean, even this week, watching back um, all the footage of what happened at the Capitol is really distressing. Um, and so they would tell us, you know, we'd in our morning meetings, they'd say, we know this is distressing. Here are mental health resources. And so that's always kind of been at the forefront of that, which I think is great. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot of different mental health tools. It's being able to have the access to talk this through with someone, which has been really helpful. And I think for me, too, I remember that, you know, when you're watching something on a screen, there is a degree of separation. There is a degree of separation mm. when you're filming something, too, but it does take a toll for sure. And I think for mm. me, like I if I have a really stressful day, I try my best to unplug when I'm done my edit or, you know, just completely try to get out of that world, I do try to focus on things that I'm really grateful of, you know, like working on mm -hmm. stories that have a lot of trauma in them is really hard, but I have to remind myself, you know, like Milu, this isn't yours. You know, you mm -hmm. get to go home at the end of the day, you know, just really mm -hmm. trying to encourage myself not to bring that home with me. And that I felt and found to be quite helpful. What do your parents think about your profession? What are their thoughts? I'm curious to know because most immigrant parents have preference for certain professions that they want their kids to be part of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel very lucky in that my parents have been supportive of anything we want to do. The only mm. thing that they have said is just to not quit something. So when I played clarinet in grade four, you better believe I played it all the way through high school. <laughs> um, and my parents were never the type of immigrant parents that would say doctor, lawyer, engineer. I mean, they knew very early that I wanted to be a journalist. I have two yeah. older sisters who are not doctor, lawyers, or engineers. And I think for them, you know, the reason that we moved to Canada was that they wanted us to have the freedom to pursue whatever education we wanted. You know, my dad was finishing his PhD in England at the time that the revolution was happening and he had to abandon it to go back because he was very fearful that the borders were closing. What if I get locked out? And so mm. I think that is something that really pushed him to want to create an opportunity for us to not have anything interrupted. And I feel mm. really, really lucky um, for that. But I mean, my parents started over. My dad was an engineer. Um, and when we moved to Canada, he opened a small textile manufacturing company which is not wow. at all what he went to school for. So they've been really, I feel really lucky. I feel very encouraged and supported by my parents. I mean, I feel so indebted that we were able to leave. Many members of my family might want to leave Iran, but don't really have the means to, or mm. it's difficult to immigrate for sure. Um, but no, I feel really lucky and supported by them. The, the only thing I would say they don't love, they don't love that I report on Iran because you know, they've been through so much upheaval in their in their home country, in their birth country. Mm. And I think, you know, the way that the Iranian government operates is it does pressure people overseas that might be dissidents or things like that. Mm. Or even I get targeted harassment all the time online um, after I report wow. on Iran specifically. And I know my parents just don't, you know, their concern is my safety. Um, and so mm. I completely understand that. But 
my mom has kind of gotten to the point where she's like, oh, I don't love that you report on this, but it seems like you know the line better than we do. You visit Iran quite often, right? Or did you stop visiting it now? I read somewhere that you used to go a lot growing up. Yeah, I used to go a lot growing up because all of my cousins and aunts and uncles were all there. We were, I think we're really the only members of our family that have left. I have an uncle in the States Hmm. as well, but he came way after us. But I haven't been back probably for a long time, um, over 10 years. And most of that's because, you know, when you go back to Iran, when I go back to Iran, you know, I, I would have to spend two, three months there. I have a big family. You want to see everyone. You don't want to be that hmm. that weird Western alien cousin who's rude, <laughs> right? There's a lot There's a lot there. Um, and so when I started going to university, I, I would work in the summers. You know, I had to work to have a job, to have money, to fund myself. So it was hard to take off chunks of time to go, and it still is. And now, you know, seeing, unfortunately, how a lot of dual nationals have been arrested or even folks who are Australian nationals or Chinese mm. nationals, you know, it's it's not the best security situation to go back right now. I have no illusions that it would be great. I know that there would be a lot of difficulties culturally uh, in terms of going back to Iran, um, but I, I miss it so much and I, I would love to go back. I I really do miss it. As a child, what is one thing that you really connected with when you went back? I connected with my family because growing hmm. up in Vancouver, we were among the first Iranians in our in our neighborhood, among the first Iranians at school, and I didn't fit in here. I went to Iran. I didn't necessarily fit in there either because I would have this, you know, I speak I speak Farsi, but I obviously mm-hmm. have a Western accent. So when I'm trying to haggle at the bazaar, like they would try to give me Western <laughs> prices. And I was like, absolutely not as an eight-year-old kid, you know, just you stick out no matter where you go. Um, for, at least I do. And in my experience of kind of growing up the way I did um, as an immigrant, a first-generation immigrant, but I found my home with my family. You know, I have a cousin who's a week younger than me. We stay in touch all the time. And I just really connected with being with my family. We're so family-oriented as Iranians, not just our nuclear family, but you're very much raised by your community and by everybody. And so to be divorced from that in Canada is a lot. It's it's very lonely. Um, And so my dad the other day said, your grandfather would say that I'm a candle in the wind alone in Vancouver, and that's not the life he would have wanted for me. And that's mm. true. Like mm. to be completely removed from mm. that is really hard. And so I really connected with being with people who I looked like and who mm. knew me and held me when I was a kid and had all these memories. Being able to be a part of that was amazing. And I just, I wish I could have more access to that. I really, really miss my family in Iran. This is making me so emotional because I'm thinking about my family in Pakistan and how great it is to spend time with them, right? It's something that as immigrants or kids of immigrants, we miss out um, wherever we are. Our hyphenated identity, our nomadic, um, I guess, values in a way keep us away from family, which is a sacrifice that many of us make. So you mentioned language. You speak Farsi. You write Farsi poetry. It blew my mind away because I was like, you need to have good command of the language to write poetry. Uh, What is about poetry that appeals most to you? Well, I'm a romantic, so I love poetry. Um, Again, so much of it goes back to my family, you know. My parents would always read Hafez, one of our classic 
poets. They would read them at our Noruz, at our Persian New Year. Growing up, if I ever had a question, if I should date this guy or take this job or, you know, any kind of big question like that or even small question, I would ask my mom and she would pick a poem at random from our book of Hafez and she would read it and Mm. interpret it as a way to answer my question. And that's a tradition that we have as Iranians. And so that's kind of always been around. And I think for me, I feel very comfortable speaking Farsi. I conduct interviews in it for work from politicians to, you know, regular Iranians. Um, But reading and writing is very difficult. I didn't obviously go to school in Iran. Um, I went to Oran Mm -hmm. school in Canada for a year, and that's where I learned the alphabet. And I would take my sister's books because my sisters are five and seven years older than me. So my oldest sister would have a book from when she went to school in Iran. And my mom would try to teach me a little bit, but I was never in formal education. I think for me, when I moved to New York and I was completely out of an Iranian community that I felt a push to want to be closer to it. There have been so many times my first move that I would just hear someone speaking Farsi and I would run up to them and be like, hi, I'm so sorry to bother you. You're speaking my <laughs> language. It is a thrill. You know, we don't even have an Iranian grocery store in New York. You know, we have like a ethnic ah. food aisle um, in, in white grocery stores or like maybe a little section in Arab markets, but we don't have a dedicated community in, in the five boroughs. We really don't. I'm surprised. I, I know. Am really. We have to make our community, you know, before COVID ah. for the last couple of years, um, myself and a couple of other Iranians, we had started a, a Persian salon where we would kind of find our own community and we would have dinners with Iranian writers, artists, poets, um, musicians, just different people that yeah. we all knew and come together and we'd meet monthly. We haven't been able to do that in a year, which I really miss, but I've had to find my community. I mean, that's been difficult, but I think, again, going back to poetry, I think the connection with my family has always been really strong. I think poetry has also forced me to go after goals of literacy. So I had a tutor. The nice thing with the New York Times is there's a bit of an education stipend. So through the Times, because so much helps my reporting, I had a Persian Hmm. tutor for a bit where I would learn how to, would start getting grammar and these basic skills and things like that. And the calligraphy part of it was just, I've thought calligraphy is so beautiful. I have zero artistic talent (laughs) and I really want an artistic talent. So I've been trying to learn (laughs) calligraphy for fun, but... um, yeah, I think so much of it is connected. So much of it goes back to me wanting to make sure I'm literate, make sure that if and when I have kids, I can communicate this part of culture and language and identity to them. Um, because I feel like for me, if I feel so close to my culture and, and my language and I still have gaps of knowledge, how am I going to yeah. communicate this to my kids? It's so much about thinking of the generations of Iranian immigrants in my family that will come after me. Nilo, you're also in the process of writing a book on Persian poetry, right? Yes, I am. So what inspired that project? And I'm sure it's a huge undertaking. It is. If anyone tells you to write a book proposal while you also work a demanding job, they are (laughs) insane. Um, But no, I think what spurred that for me was that my mom would be reading me all of these Hafez poems in Persian, which he wrote, you know, hundreds of years ago in a medieval dialect and in uh, in a literary dialect that I'm not familiar with at all. And he wrote in complicated metaphors and all of this. Then when my mom would read it to me, I'd have no idea what she was talking about. So I'd be like, mom, should I date huh. this guy? And she'd be like, well, Hafez says, you know, go towards God and with my mom, with her religious perspective. And I was like, this is not helpful, mom. Like, I know he's talking about wine. Like, this is not 
a correct interpretation. So that pushed me <laughs> to like want to be able to understand that so I could have my own interpretations of it. And then once yeah. I kind of started learning more about poetry and kind of reflecting on how how that intersected with identity and a lack of understanding of Iranians in the West, that's kind of what pushed me to, to write, um, start writing this mm. book. So essentially this book has to do with using classic um, and modern Persian poetry and using that as a way to understand Iranians, our identity and who we are as a people. Because if you want to connect with us, do diplomacy with us, you have to understand mm. how important words are to us and why mm. we act and identify the way that we do. And that all leads back to poetry. So what have you learned through poetry about Iranian culture that you did not already know? I think what I mentioned to you at the beginning, which is that we, from even the earliest times in our in our cultural history, we've looked to the past to define ourselves. Hmm. That's something that's really stuck with me. You know, when Ferdowsi finished his Shahnameh, his Book of Kings about, you know, the mythical and medieval and historical story of the Persian Empire, all about the various battles as well with Arab invaders, he took such a painstaking effort to preserve our language. He used Farsi words without any hmm. kind of um, Arab influence, for example. Like he really tried to cement that. And I mm. think he was looking to the past when we were great and to kind of keep rooted in who we are. And I feel like we do that as as Iranians all the time. You know, mm. when Rouhani made a speech at the United Nations a few years ago at the General Assembly, he said something like, we don't need to invade America with boots to be here. We're already here. We're here with the mm. words of Rumi and Saadi and Hafez. And mm. I think that, again, he's looking to our past, our classical poetic past, to talk mm. about our present. And I think we do that a lot. And that's been really interesting. Is there a downside to looking at the past? Yeah, I mean, I think the past is a whirlpool. I think nostalgia is a whirlpool. You can so mm. easily get sucked in and, mm. and and be blind to what's going on presently in front of you. So I think that's definitely a danger. If we're looking so much to the past, are we dealing with the issues at the present and thinking about the future? And I think too, like, Iranians are obsessed with history. Like talk to any Iranian for five minutes and immediately will bring up the Persian Empire. How many times have I brought up the Persian <laughs> Empire to you? Like this is just who we are. Um, and so when you talk to Iranians about, oh, you know, you know, your family had this issue with the current government. What do you think? A lot of Iranians I've talked to will say things like, well, you know, we've lasted, we've existed for hundreds of years. We'll exist for hundreds more after this government. And it's like, okay, but there's real human consequences <laughs> to what's going on right now. And I think, again, like culturally, we look to the past. There's a lot of trauma in the present for us that it's easier to mm. do that. But I think absolutely there's negatives to having everything rooted in your past. Let's talk about the New York Times. Um, I was going to ask you if you ever felt um, conflicted by the assignments you get. And by this, I mean um, most news outlets um, have this partisan reputation, right? And many would consider the New York Times as liberal, but progressives like myself, I find it as another how do I say this, flagship of the American media machine. There have been times where I've been disappointed in the way New York Times has reported. Do you feel that conflict at times? Are you frustrated? That's a good question. Um, you know, 
Yeah, I think like every reporter, I definitely have, I sometimes will have not frustrations, but I'll just be curious why something was reported this way um, or why Hmm. this piece of context was left out or, you know, we're reporting on the nuclear deal, but this isn't so nuanced. Okay, well, I can understand because it's just such a, you know, it's such a technical document and technical agreement that I can understand why we're having, you know, we might have a hard time communicating that to a news audience that isn't dialed in, you know? So I I think about all these Mm. things when I question coverage. And so the times I do feel frustrated, again, what I find really encouraging is that the editors, in my experience, do listen to us when we flag things. And I think that shows a real commitment to hearing because sometimes I feel like it's generational or, um, or just, or just, Mm. I feel like they're receptive to hearing ideas from folks from diverse backgrounds like myself and, you know, from age groups and and countries and things like that. So anytime I do feel frustrated, Mm. what I really, what makes me kind of see the other side of that is how receptive they are. And it's not just with Iran, like we've had folks in our, and, and I'm sure it's been reported on, we've had folks in our, um, newsroom bring up issues of coverage when it came to the opinion desk, for example. And I felt like the Mm, leadership mm. did listen to that and took it very seriously. And so that's why I kind of feel encouraged by this. It's just like, yes, the New York Times is an institution, right? It's been been around for so long. It's the paper of record, but it is a living and breathing institution in that I, in my experience, I felt that they actually do listen to our concerns and I feel like there is a dialogue. So you know, I don't ever feel like there's a shutdown. I feel like often, you know, the standards editors, the editors of the desk, like really do listen to us. And that makes me really proud and happy to be a part of this institution, even though there are points at which, you know, like any journalist who is critical, you know, we're all critical thinkers. That, that's that's a big reason mm. why we are in the position we are. We're here to critically listen to, I don't know, I guess not critically listen. We're here to hear ideas and bring our <laughs> own experiences to them. And they do listen to us. And I feel like that that's great. And I don't know how that would be received at other media companies. Nilo, are there any interesting projects that you're working on other than your book that you're excited about? Well, I mean, until the Capitol uh, attempted coup, the siege, the riot, whatever we're going to call it, <laughs> happened, I was working on a lot of really um, interesting things looking at immigration and how the Biden administration was going to deal with immigration in the U.S. And I was ready to file a bunch of FOIAs, but um, as is the news happens. So (laughs) I'm very much working on different stories, I think, related to to the Capitol at the moment. But more so, I think I'm working on some stuff outside of journalism, too. Like I'm someone that kind of has to have multiple plates spinning to be really productive. So I directed and produced and styled my first music video last year, which Ah. was very fun. And I'm hoping to do more of that this year. I think having creative breaks when working on something so heavy is really helpful. But no, I mean, I'm a big news nerd. So my next project, I probably don't even know about it yet because I'm still waiting for for it to come, which is Hmm. the really exciting part about being a journalist. And in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Fragile. I would Hmm. use, I would say America is, is fragile, both with its as we've seen a big lack of understanding among a lot of American, uh, you know, members of the media and American citizens of just exactly what homegrown tension and problems look like. And that mm. not understanding that makes you really fragile. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nilo. Where can people find your work? 
You can find my work on Twitter at ntabrizi, and I also have a website, ntabrizi.com, where I put most of my work. And you're uh, in California right now, right? No, I'm home in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I oh. came here in November because I hadn't been able to leave the country. I was in the middle of my green card. So I got oh. my green card the night before the U.S. election, which was oh, congratulations. crazy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm home for a bit, but I head back to New York in a couple of weeks. Oh, that would be great when you come back and when all of this is over, um, we should definitely meet up. I mean, we can meet up outdoors, but it's extremely cold right now. I know it's, we'll, we'll meet up. We'll each wear every jacket we own and it will be great. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nilo. This was great. This is the reason why I love my walk so much. I absolutely adore podcasting because I get to meet so many amazing people. I just had so much fun talking to Nilo. I hope you enjoyed it too. And if you did, don't forget to share. Until next time, take care.